Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. It's good to see you guys. Um, James, I want to, JB, I want to thank you for stepping into the pulpit at the last minute last week. For me, just absolutely wonderful to see guys who are ready um, and, what's the word say? In and out of season, prepared to share. And that's, it's, you guys are a joy to us. Corley and the kids, you really are. We delight to have you with us. So this morning I'm speaking again out of Philippians chapter 3, and I've, for those of you who take notes, and that's a good thing because your memories, if they're like mine, are sieves, I've called it this morning, No Advantage. No Advantage is the title of what I'm going to speak on. And so let's start reading together. I'll actually go back to verse 1, just so we get a little bit more of the context of where we are in Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. And a few weeks ago, we unpacked this and looked at it. You can go back and get it on the internet. And then Paul has this scathing rebuke. He says, look out for the dogs, the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he goes after these guys and we spoke about it and I'm going to remind us about it today because they're wanting to bring Jesus plus something. So there's this Philippian group, this church, these Philippian people, and they're trying to follow Christ. And then there's these Judaizers who come in and they're saying, yes, you can follow Christ. Your faith, great, nice, cute, that's fine. But you also need to be circumcised. So they bring a Jesus plus gospel. You must add something else to this faith that you have. And that's why Paul goes after them like he does. Verse 3, he then says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I think that's a wonderful, you can call it the the identikit of a Christian. You know like when there's a crime and they want to know who did it, who done that, and they get they get like all the, they put the, the nose and they, the eyes, and that's an identikit. When you, when you look at a Christian, you say, well, what is a Christian? I think Philippians Chapter 3, verse 3, is a wonderful identikit of a Christian. We're going to come back to that later on. And then Paul goes on this ramble, seems as a common theme among Pauls. And he begins this profound kind of look into his history. And this is what he says about himself. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. What a statement. And now he begins to list why he can say that. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father, as we read your word this morning, I want to ask that as we hear and our minds process the words, that your Holy Spirit would come and push them deep into our hearts. Lord, we don't want to understand knowledge. We want to live lives that are changed because of the fact that you're changing us in our heart level, God. You're getting behind the barriers, behind our intellect, behind our sin, and you're changing us to the core. Would you come and do that as we sit under your word this morning? And every time that we approach your word, would you do that in our hearts? In your name we ask this. Amen. So Paul is is making the point when he goes after the dogs, he goes after the evildoers, he goes after the mutilators of the flesh, he's making the point that these guys are trying to introduce a grave error among the Philippians, right? But then what Paul does is remarkable. He says, so last week if you were here, J.B. was in Mark chapter 4, and he said there's three different worldviews that you can kind of look at, and one of them is this view of religion. We come to a text and we look at it through the view of religion. The other one is, is through kind of mystery. And the other one is, is a biblical approach to that. Do you remember that, those of you who were here last week? Right? Well, Paul says, oh, I've, got the, I've got the book on religion. I want to show you what a religious life looks like. And he kind of, it's actually quite an, an intimate moment where Paul draws the curtain back. Like it's a vulnerable moment where he draws the curtain back on his own life. And he says, you think religion can help you? Do you think that these guys coming to tell you to add circumcision can help you? Let me tell you about everything I had attached to me. Let me tell you about everything that was to my advantage. He says, I'm exhibit A. That's what Paul is effectively saying in in this passage. I'm exhibit A. I understand, Philippians, why you are tempted to take Christ plus something. I get it. I used to think like that. I tried that religion is what he's saying. And so he begins to list these seven advantages, and I want to go through them because I think that they pertain so beautifully to many of us sitting here this morning. They certainly pertain to huge aspects of my own heart. The first one that Paul appeals to, he says, if I was going to appeal to any kind of advantage, circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I have an outward sign of being of the family of God. What do we hold to today? What do you hold to in your heart today? What is your confidence? Well, Paul, I was baptized as an infant. Doesn't that count for anything? I was, I was confirmed. Maybe you say, well, I was brought up in a Christian family. You should meet my mom and dad. Maybe you appeal to scriptural knowledge. What's your, what is your outward sign? That Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And we say, I was. He doesn't, just, he doesn't stop there. Then he says, I was of the people of Israel. Just a cursory reading of the Old Testament. And you start to realize Israel's a somewhat important theme. Right? In the Old Testament. When Paul says, I was of the people of Israel. He's saying, I'm one of the chosen Nation. I'm one of God's elect. God has been, the whole Bible, God has been taking us through the Old Testament step by step, showing us how he gathers and guides this Israelite nation, right? 
So Paul appeals to his nationality. Have you ever heard people say, no, South Africa is a, is a Christian nation? Well, what do you think happened? Like the nation gave its heart to Jesus? And what does a Christian nation mean and a secular nation mean? It means that the people in it, anyway. But, but some of us want to appeal to, well, but I'm, I'm, it's my nationality. I'm a Christian by nationality. I'm a Christian by, by family. I'm a Christian by association with my country or my family. And then Paul says, I'm, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. This one you've got to dig a little bit deeper. Benjamin was like the elite tribe of Israel. It wasn't just being part of Israel. Benjamin was one of two tribes. Benjamin and Judah were the tribes who had remained the most faithful to God throughout all the different trials. And Benjamin had the very special place in, in Israelite history because the first king had come from Benjamin. And so Paul says, I'm not just of any part of Israel. I'm of the elite part. I'm of the Benjamin part of Israel. That's the tribe I'm part of. That's the tribe. So what's the tribe you're part of? The university tribe? You know, maybe you wear your intellect as some kind of advantage. Maybe you're from the rich tribe. Maybe, conversely, you're from the poor tribe and you think, well, the rich people, they don't get it. They have no advantage coming to God's kingdom. I really get it. I know what sacrifice is about. Then Paul says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. This could be translated like this. I'm a Hebrew-speaking child of Hebrew-speaking parents. So he's, he's saying to these Gentiles who are tempted to be circumcised to f- become part of Israel, so to speak, he's saying, listen, my parents spoke Hebrew. I speak Hebrew. We go back generations. He's saying not even that. Language, or in our, in our context, it's white, black, colored. What is, what is it that we might think is our advantage? And Paul says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. This one starts to get uncomfortably close to home for us. What's a Pharisee? Well, it's a sect. It's a, there's a whole group of people who believed in Yahweh God, but the Pharisees were the ones who held, they believed they held most tightly to the Old Testament law. They the denomination. Oh, that one comes and, and roosts on us, doesn't it? I'm not just a Christian. I'm a, well, I'm a charismatic Christian. You might not say it. I'm, I'm an Anglican. I'm a Baptist. As if God cares. As if he cares. And man, we hold these things up as some kind of advantage, don't we? They, they, they don't really get it. When the charismatics are big, then they'll understand. And Paul says, as for zeal, or as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I couldn't have been more zealous if I tried. And so he points to even his own temperament. And he says, not even my own temperament is, is of an advantage to me. Some of us are like looking around the room and we're like, I'm an optimist. They are a pessimist. You know, I'm passionate. They just garden variety dull. We think that brings like some kind of advantage to us. And then my, our favorite one, especially as South Africans, guys, I don't know what it is that has embedded moralism and legalism and behaviorism so deeply inside of our culture, but man, do we like to try and perform. 
Do we like to try and tick the boxes and keep the laws? And Paul goes right at the heart of it in his own life. And he says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. If I just do this or that and don't get drunk and don't do this, then I have an advantage, don't I? And what does Paul conclude after? So he goes through this incredible list of things that he says, this is to my advantage. Boom, 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 boom. And then this is how he concludes. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, it's as if I had none of these advantages in the first place. It's as if I never had them. And so if Paul's saying, if I wasn't an Israelite, if I wasn't of the tribe of Benjamin, if I wasn't a Hebrew of Hebrews, if I wasn't a a Pharisee, if I had no zeal whatsoever, maybe some of you feel like that this morning. If I was an immoral man and I had no morality, saying all our advantages are rubbish. All our disadvantages are rubbish. And he levels the, he levels the road. He's saying when we come to faith, you don't have any disadvantages. You don't have any advantages. Do you believe that? Paul says, I counted as if it never happened to me. Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss. Let me ask you this morning. That's what Paul concludes. What do you conclude? What do you conclude around your own salvation? Here's some application questions for you. What advantage do you have? What special ability do you believe enables you to better come to God? What special gift do you think enables you to to present yourself better before God? What family do you come from? What personality even do you have that makes you feel in any way superior. What, what could you vouch? If, you had, if I had to say, come tell me why you're righteous, Dave. Come tell me why you're righteous. What would you put on the table in front of me? Your generosity? Your lack of racism? Maybe you'd bring your ethics. You should see me at work. You should see the way I treat my workers. <laughs> Shine that badge, friend. Shine that badge. Maybe you bring your moral purity. Maybe you hold up your virginity. Maybe you hold up your soberness. And you say, this gives me an advantage, right? I want to ask you again, what does Paul conclude? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now maybe you're, maybe you're on the other side of the coin. And this really struck me when I was reading this text. I'm going, I'm going on a little tangent here, just a warning. But it is relevant. I've always defaulted to being more self-confident slash arrogant, right? That's self-assured. But as I've got a little bit older, I've realized that a lot of people don't see the world the way I see the world. And that's just what Paul's speaking about, personality. You think you've got some advantage because of your personality. But there's many... People who, who read a text like this and they say, Paul, what are you talking about? I don't feel like I have any advantage. I actually feel pretty worthless. If, if you had to like dig below the surface and ask, well, should God save me? The answer I would say is, well, no. I don't know why he would. Like, why would God even worry with me? And, and something struck me when I read 
almost Paul looking back through the curtains of his life. Paul's like incredibly brash, right? He's like, I was it. I was the elite of the elite. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And it reminded me of Judges chapter 6 where there's another great leader in Israel but who certainly didn't start out like Paul was with all this brash advantage to his name. Judges 6 tells the story of Gideon. And if you write away the story that you know, the history of Gideon and all that he accomplished in the end, if you just take that away and you go to kind of the initial meeting moment, you see a man who's afraid. In Judges chapter 6, you see that the Philistine bands are busy marauding, coming over the hills and stealing the food from the Israelites. And so he's made himself a nice little shelter. He's in a, in a well, and he's busy looking after his food down the bottom of the well. He's busy threshing his grain because he's afraid. And then the angel of the Lord appears to him, and this is what he says, the first words out of his mouth. The angel of the Lord appears and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I remember reading this as a teenager and, and being like, what's going on? Like, who's he talking to? This guy trembling down the bottom of the wine press, arise, O oh mighty man of valor. And Gideon then says these words in verse 15. He says, and he said to him, please, Lord, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm not even from Benjamin like Paul. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And that's not all. I am the least in my father's house. So if Paul's saying, I'm the elite of the elite, Gideon is saying, I'm the worst of the worst. I'm the worthless one. And then the Lord said to him, but I will be with you but I will be with you. And then you see the salvation of God when he says, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And this, I could, I could preach on this section. It is so beautiful. But I just wanted to pull out this morning how incredibly beautiful is it that for those of us who feel worthless, for those of us who feel like we have no advantage whatsoever to bring, that we don't measure up in any way on anybody's chart. We, we're right off the bottom of the chart. We don't even come close to measuring up that God would still accept us and he'd still even call us man of valor, woman of valor. I just find that beautiful that God calls his future into a situation where he very evidently isn't being that person is incredible for me. What is God saying over your life this morning? What are the areas of weakness in your life that God might be proclaiming victory over in your life? Were you feeling like a Gideon trembling in the wine press and God is saying, arise, mighty man of valor. I just, I love that how level, do you know the, do you know the old phrase, the, 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 the foot of the cross is level? We don't bring anything. Disadvantage, advantage, advantage made low, disadvantage brought up. And then even the story of Gideon is so powerful for those who feel competent, those who feel able. You know, you know what the hardest challenge is for, the, for those of us who have suffered from self-assurances? God, you don't want to... Have you seen my stuff? Have you seen it, God? Have you, I mean, you really want me to discount all this cool stuff? Just look, God. Just take another look. Have a look. It's cool. And this, the scripture just comes and like just punches a hole. Bah, right through it. I love that. Let's go back to Philippians. 
just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, who might feel like Gideon. Paul says, but whatever gain, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Speaking about those things that he's just been listing, those seven things he's been listing. In our verse 8, he carries on and he says, <clears throat> Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So first he starts off with his old, his old past. He says, I thought this stuff was making me righteous. All this religious stuff that I was doing, I thought this was making me righteous. And I've counted that as loss. And we can say, okay, great. Let's get rid of the religious stuff. But then Paul takes it another step. And he says, indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything, not just my religious stuff. So it's like he's got this box that says everything on the front and he means everything. And then he comes and he puts his wealth into it. And then he comes and he puts his career into it. Then he comes and he puts his family into it. Then he comes and he puts every single thing you can imagine into the box. And now he's got this box that says everything. And he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth or the surpassing greatness the NIV says of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's like you were digging in the middle of the night and you thought you found treasure, right? You were like convinced, I found some treasure, but it's dark and you can't quite see. And in the morning you can see, when you can see with the light, you can see you're digging in the garbage can. And the treasure you thought you found was like an old baked bean tin. And that's, it's like when, when you see the light, when you see Christ, when you see the surpassing worth of who Christ is, that's when everything is suddenly shown up as garbage. As Paul calls it rubbish. It's in, in the light of that. Eaton says it like this. He says, Paul is willing to give up every possible advantage, every distinction that gets him recognition in the eyes of others, if only he gets to know Christ. Now I want, you, I want to say this carefully because I don't want you to hear me saying that everything in that box is worthless. Your career, your family, your wealth, these things God can use for his kingdom. He does use for his kingdom. But the point that Paul is making is that it gets eclipsed when we truly get hold of who Christ is. When we can truly see Christ, it gets completely eclipsed. I think there's such a vital key in this little passage, a practical key that I just want to share with you. I've found in my own life, the more that I try to abandon the everything, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're like, today, I'm not going to... Whatever it is, fill in the blank. I'm going to cut loose this thing. I'm going to live for Christ and I'm not going to have this thing in my life. And it's like you're going out of the panga, like cutting things off. And it just feels like the, the burden gets heavier and heavier. And it feels like you never actually get rid of the knapsack, right? You're just adding rocks in every day. I found that the more that I learn how to look at Christ, the more that everything just takes care of itself. If you notice that, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim rather than make the things of this world strangely dim. Make the things of this world strangely dim, and then you'll see Christ. No, look at Christ. And by that, I mean that we take deliberate time during our day to foster a relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Any of you know about or, or, or practice meditation? 
It's a scriptural concept. The New Age guys have ripped it away from us and made it like in the weirdy fringe. This is a scriptural thing that we meditate upon God and upon His Word. We need to reclaim it and sit for sometimes half an hour in our day if we've got the space. Five minutes in our car and just say, Jesus, show me again. Show me again who you are. We lose the art of worshiping rightly. We think worship is coming and singing a few songs. And if we don't like the songs, well, bad luck. You didn't worship this week. You know, worship is a cultivation of our hearts that we're coming before God regularly saying, God, I don't understand, but I worship. It's not singing. It's our whole lives. And just one expression when we come together is, hey, we're going to sing some songs and you might like a few. Anyway, I just wanted to pull that out because for me, it's been such a, a vital key in actually practically living this out, that we, that we chase after seeing who Christ is. We read our word looking for who Christ is. We pray looking, saying, Jesus, show me again who you are, the surpassing worth of, of why. Tell me why it's better to be in your kingdom than the kingdom of the world. And then Paul carries on in verse 8 and says, For his sake I have suffered the loss. I want you to note that phrase. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That little phrase, suffered the loss. I think sometimes we come to scripture naively. We read it briefly or we read it lightly. And we maybe... We think that somehow we're going to have this like giddy joy, this optimistic Christian joy when it comes to giving up things that we hold precious. And I want to, I want to remind us this morning that some things are forcibly removed from us by God. Don't cast and bind out the devil and throw him behind the closest rock or the closest tree by God. God is engineering difficult circumstances for our lives because God is more interested in our growth than in our comfort. Stick that on your car. It'll preach. When we look at the life of Paul, I mean, it's inescapable that Paul was losing things all along the way that were deeply precious to him. He writes in different places about friends abandoning him. Anyone had friends abandon them. He writes about the, the differences in his wealth and comfort. And he says, often it was torn from him. He says, at times I had much. I had plenty. At other times I had nothing. Anyone ever felt like that? Opened your bank account? Oh, Lord Jesus, help never been on the other side of that, so I can't really speak for those of you who's open and been like, woo! <laughs> Paul, even, I mean, where he, from the prison, he's writing from prison. Even his liberty was denied to him. So his liberty had been, had been torn away from him. I don't think he was just like, Oh, cool, I'm going back to prison. I think this was a struggle. I think this was, this was difficult. And when we come with naive Christian eyes to the text and we read a verse like, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And we think Paul's just somehow like happily tripping through the daisies. We don't allow it to apply into our own lives and the circumstances that you and I are facing. 
What are you going through? We've been speaking about this all through the book of Philippians, where we lie on our beds and we reach moments where we're like, God, I can't anymore, God. I've got nothing left to give. I'm desperate. This is where we need to read the word of God rightly and take courage from it. See, because all along the way, God is busy taking Paul. God is busy taking Paul through step by step by step and showing him that everything other than Christ was rubbish. If God just let us believe that all the other stuff was as cool as we thought it was and never confronted us, and we would never see Jesus rightly. I mean, you go, and, you go and read anywhere you want. You can just almost dip into Scripture at random and you will see painful experience, loss, even confusion and doubt. Who are you? Go read the Psalms. Look at the cry of the hearts in the Psalms. Look at Joseph, sold into slavery by his own family. I mean, sit on the psychologist's couch with that. My family sold me. Think of Moses, brought up in Pharaoh's courts, brought up in luxury, and then 40 years of preparation in the desert. God's patient. 40 years. You think of Job. You think of Hebrews 11, the great stories of faith. It ends off. It ends off where it says, but they were torn and they were sawn in two. It ends off saying they, they hid in caves and in the ground, and the world was not worthy of them. These great men and women of the faith. Let me read this Eaton quote. I think it sums it up so beautifully. When we face loss of worldly honors, worldly status, worldly wealth, we learn to evaluate such things rightly. They are garbage in comparison with what God wants to give us, a deeper knowledge of Jesus. We deliberately allow God to readjust our values. We regard the knowledge of Jesus as a priceless treasure. We regard worldly honors as worthless and worse than worthless. Some of us this morning, we, that we deliberately allow him to readjust our values. I want to challenge you. You're going through a tough time. You're facing some of the hardest times you've ever faced or you're going through a whole bunch of little things. The last time I spoke, I spoke about a thousand little paper cuts. And you can't point to like one thing being like, this is the big drama in my life. But you just feel like a thousand little paper cuts have got you to the point where you're bleeding. Can we come before God and say, Father, we trust you to readjust our values through this time. Let me change gear as we kind of start meandering to a conclusion. Let me ask you, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Maybe, maybe this morning you say, well, Paul, most of the room are already believers, right? I hope most of you already know Jesus Christ, already love him, already want to follow him with your life. So, Paul, if that's the case, then why go on telling us over and over and over again about a moment that we had, a salvation that we received? Why do you keep on banging on week on week about justification and salvation and what we bring to salvation and everything else? And I want to use an illustration this morning of a sunrise. If I could have brought it in, I would have. Like dark and awesome. Do you know, this morning, apparently, in Stellenbosch, the sun rose at 6.52. 
6.52. It was light before that, but that's, I don't know how they calculated the actual sunrise, but that's when it was. Now, do you know that the sun rose? Obviously you do. Whether you were awake or not. Whether you admired it or not. You might have been in baby land trying to feed 500 children. Like, you know, curtains are closed. You're just going, sunrise, what sunrise? I haven't seen that for 15 years. Whatever you were doing, but the sun rose as an objective fact. Objective reality. The sun rose at 6.52 in Stellenbosch this morning. And I want to tell you that your salvation is like that. It's objective fact. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and are serving Him with your life, you are saved. Your salvation is like the sunrise. It's happened. Your position in Christ secured. All right? But now you might have been up on Stellenbosch Mountain this morning. And you might have been holding the hand of somebody that you love. And you might have had some tea and some cake because you haven't got children yet. All right? It could have been you. Or you could have been cycling down a beautiful path and looking at the sunrise coming up and breathing in that freezing cold air and being like, God, I'm so grateful I'm alive. Thank you for my body. Thank you for my bike. Thank you for this morning. Same sunrise, right? Completely different experience. If you were just fast asleep and and for me this this is a metaphor of Christ has done it. The sun has risen. It's, it's there. It's, a, it's an objective fact. But then there's a subjective reality that we live in. There's an experiential reality that's not just the fact that the sun rose, but there's this experience of watching it with all the emotions that it comes with and everything else. And our, our salvation experience is like that. We don't just know it in our heads as a moment in time, but we get to experience it with God on an ongoing basis, right? That's why those of you who've come from like a very uh, conservative Christianity, maybe a religious Christianity, you, I find you guys the most passionate when it comes to speaking about a relationship with Jesus because there was a moment in your, in your walk where suddenly you realized it's supposed to be so much more. It's supposed to be this relationship. This morning during worship, we were singing that, that second song, Your Love Never Fails. It never gives up. Do you remember that one? We were singing that line and we were singing and then we sang some other songs. But I was worshiping and 2 Kings chapter 6 came to mind where Elijah, Elisha, his postecessor, whichever the second one, Elisha, there's this king that surrounds the whole town. It says with many horses and many chariots, they came and surrounded this whole town and they were trying to take Elisha captive. And his servant goes out in the morning. It's an hilarious story. Go and read it. Second Kings chapter six. His servant comes out and he basically runs back in and says, we're toast. You must see what's going on outside. And then Elisha replies with this beautiful thing. He says, we're fine. Lord, would you open his eyes to see? And as his eyes are opened, he sees that the hills are full of flaming chariots that God has completely surrounded and is protecting them with angels. We sang that last song, the God of angel armies is by my side. Now the reason I'm telling you that is because as we're worshiping this morning, I felt like there's some of you who can sing that song. Your love never fails. It never, it never gives up. But experientially, you're not feeling that at all. You feel like, God, where are you? 
I, I know, I know you're good. I know you're right. I know you've saved me, but God, where are you? And that story is so powerful because it's more about God than about us. God was rescuing Elisha, yes, but it's more about God showing his might. I'm just drawing a, a difference here between the position we have in Christ and the experience that we have in Christ. And I think that God wants to come. And for some of you this morning that are struggling in the experience with Christ, He wants to come and say, I do. I do. I want you to know it. I want you to experience it. Oh God, come and open his eyes that he could see the chariots on the hills. So what are we trying to do here this morning? I'm trying to remind us that as we understand more and more of how God saved us, it profoundly impacts the way we live once we are saved. It profoundly influences the way that we approach our everyday. And it's also a warning shot because some of us have deep spiritual pride and feel like we've done a whole lot to deserve this salvation. God, have you seen my sacrifice? Have you seen the early mornings that I've been up and praying? Have you seen God? These other guys in my church, they don't even read their Bible. They, don't even, they can't even say all the, all the books of the Bible in order, God. But you know me. You know me, God. You and me, we up earlier. Eh? You're so early. <laughs> you know? It's like when guys get up to like bring a prophetic word and they start with early Early, early this morning. <laughs> but some of us are struggling with, with spiritual pride. And this morning is a warning to us that we can bring nothing. We brought nothing. And God wants to cultivate in us the wonder of knowing Jesus. Because when we come with pride, we don't look at Christ that much. Because I'm so busy looking at me. Let's finish this text. I want to read again from verse 8. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Remember a couple of weeks ago we spoke about where you're going to hook. We looked at all the rejoice in the Lord. Philippians says hope in the Lord. Have confidence in the Lord. And we looked at all the in the Lord phrases. And I asked you where are you going to hook your hope? And here Paul is putting our very salvation. Not having a righteousness of my own. You can hook it onto yourself if you want to. But it's not going to save you. He says, I'm hooking onto that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me finish with this 
Paul comes back full circle because he goes on like this whole thing. He starts off with rejoicing and then he says, beware of these people who are trying to bring the circumcision and trying to make you believe that you need Jesus plus something. And then he goes, I want to tell you about religion. I want to tell you about what I tried and I want to tell you about why it didn't work. And I think that when we come back into the beginning of chapter 3, this thing that I called earlier on, I spoke about the believer or the, or the, the Christian's identikit. How do you know? How do you know if someone is a believer? I think that this so beautifully sums it up. Because Paul's juxtaposing these people who are trying to add, 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 circumcision or whatever else to Jesus. And then he says, no, 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 they're wrong. We are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. In other words, he's saying, you, you Philippians, you are really the ones who are the Lord's. Don't worry about this nation Israel thing that these people are trying to force you into in a physical way to circumcise you. No, no. You are the Lord's. Your identity is in Him. You are, as Peter says, His living stones that He's building a temple with. You are, as, as, as the gospel speak about the vine and being grafted into the vine. We are the people that are being grafted into the vine. We are the people of promise. And then he says, this is how you see them. Those who worship by the Spirit of God. How do you worship? I don't mean sing a song. I don't mean open your mouth and clap your hands and lift your hands. I mean, how do you, how do you worship? Are you trying to worship in your own strength? Are you trying to worship a God of your own imagination that you think, I, I like, I like this, I don't like this, and you kind of cherry pick or like licorice all sorts which God you want and you take them out? No, the, the identikit for a true believer is they worship by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God in the way that God wants us to worship Him. And it says they glory in Christ Jesus. So not only can you add nothing to your salvation, you can't add the circumcision, and not only can you, can you not claim that you're bringing anything to the table as if you could worship by your own spirit, but also we keep pointing, the true believer keeps pointing to Christ. And saying, no, look, he's glorious. We don't boast in our own stuff. We don't boast. We, we know nothing of advantage, nothing of disadvantage. We don't live in our advantage, lording it over people. I'm the real Christian. We don't live as a victim in our disadvantage. Constantly going around the thing that happened. Of course we need time for healing. You know me, you know all those things. We don't live there. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh man I don't know about you but in my honest moments Paul might have been able to claim that he could put confidence in the flesh I ain't got a shot I haven't got a shot you know like when you want to you want to like on one side my kids play these this these things in their books that they do like you know you have all the words on one side and then you got to match them with all the words on the other side then you've got to like draw a line like apple to like hungry and banana to like monkey or like those things. You know what I mean? Like when you hold up like the moral code, you want to hold up behaviorism or, or law. And then you hold up like if you could throw up a slide of Paul, me, not this Paul, Paul, me, or you, put your name in there. It, it just doesn't line up, right? 
It's like this thing's broken. I can't I can maybe add one or two lines, and then I got then I run out. I got no more lines to add. And am I am I only but grateful when Paul says I place no confidence in the flesh? That should be like a jump up and like yeah moment for us, like a celebration moment. This is this is the deepest assurance for me that my faith is placed other than me, that my hope is placed in something other than me, that my ability to change is placed in something other than me. That's so liberating. One of my favorite hymns. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Sometimes we need to drive in our car and just sing that thing. Sing it again. And sing it again like a good charismatic. Just keep repeating the chorus. Come on. And then just jump to another random hymn chorus. Don't worry. But just, just go. <laughs> and then maybe you don't know. Christ, this morning, man, what a relief. What a relief that you can come as you are. I remember talking to an older friend of mine who's just a, a wonderful evangelist. He loves just quote, he just quotes scripture like crazy. He's in Somerset West. And he had a conversation with a, a friend of his who has said this to him, and I'm sure many of you have heard it. I've heard it in my own personal space as well. I just want to get myself a bit more right before I come to God. You know, I, I'm living with my girlfriend. I was drunk yesterday. I'm doing this, you know, like I just want to get myself, I'm going to get like a little bit more acceptable, respectable. And then I'm going to come to God. And this guy just, it, it's always stuck with me. He just responded and he said, but you know, Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I just thought, how, how profound. Like, you're in the perfect place for salvation. As you are is the perfect place. In your sickness is the perfect place. Don't try and make yourself healthy. That's why Christ came. So if you don't know him here this morning, I, I hope you're challenged and I hope you're encouraged in exactly the same breath. I hope that you feel a relief as you walk out of here and you say, Father, I want to follow you and thank you that I don't have to perform like a monkey in a circus, trying to jump through hoops and rings and, and perform and, and behave. And You get what I'm saying? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this body that gathers faithfully week after week that love you, God. I see you stirring and, and lighting fires inside of people's hearts. I see you taking young men and women and, and throwing them into purpose and destiny and meaning with their lives, God. I see you building brick upon brick. Not the big dramatics necessarily, God, but brick upon brick, week upon week. You're busy doing stuff in our lives. You're doing stuff as a community as we meet on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and all over the place as we meet, God. You're busy doing things in our hearts. You're discipling us, Holy Spirit. You're growing us and we come before you again this morning and submit to you. Say, do with us as you want, Lord. Father, thank you for the freedom 
that we do not have to prove ourselves. We do not have to come and list our advantages before you. We do not have to come and live in our disadvantages. But God, that you have made the foot of the cross level. God, where there's pride and arrogance because of our advantages, would you come and stir our hearts and break those things down, even if they're painful, God? Some of us in the room are afraid to pray that. Lord, I want to pray it on their behalf. Would you come and do whatever it is, Lord, to help us see Jesus more rightly? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to have the biggest bank account, to have all the acclaim you can imagine, and yet to forfeit his soul? Oh God, that we would see you more. Father, for those brothers and sisters this morning, really struggling in weakness, really struggling, Father, to believe they have anything to bring, would you remind them that there's nothing they can do anyway in that odd, encouraging way that you do? Would you come and do that in our hearts? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that even as we sit here this morning, you can come and minister to us. You know exactly what we need. Without a coffee date, without a long yak, you know exactly what's going on in our hearts, Lord.